Hello, and welcome to Hopeful Conversations, brought to you by Robbie's Hope Foundation. I am your host, Kari Eckert. Joining me today is Dr. Sarah Lipson, an assistant professor in the Department of Health, Law, Policy, and Management at Boston University School of Public Health. Dr. Lipson has been the pr principal investigator of the Healthy Minds Network for over 10 years. I must say that again. Dr. Lipson has been the principal investigator of the Healthy Minds Network for over 10 years, one of the nation's premier research organizations contributing to adolescent and youth mental health. Her research focuses on addressing mental health inequalities within college universities and improving safety and practices at Boston University specifically. Dr. Lipson received her PhD in public health and education from the University of Michigan in hopes to understand mental health in college populations. Dr. Lipson, thank you so much for joining me today on Hopeful Conversations. Thanks so much, Kari. Looking forward to chatting. Can you give us a little bit of background for our listeners to understand maybe what the Healthy Minds Network and the Healthy Minds Study are? Yeah, for sure. So um, the Healthy Minds Network is a research to practice organization or initiative. Um, our starting point is with research. So that's really where our expertise lies and where what our starting point is for our work. So the Healthy Minds Study is our, our main research initiative. It's an annual online survey of college students and their mental health, their help-seeking behaviors, and a range of other topics. And we now have um, as well as survey of faculty and staff um, at colleges and universities. Um, so we collect data every year through the Healthy Minds study across the country. And then with the Healthy Minds Network, our broader initiative, it's trying to take that data that we collect and go a little bit further with it, put it in the hands of policymakers and practitioners in a way that can actually inform their work. Um, so really, again, trying to use our data and research expertise to make the data as useful as possible to um, individual schools that are using the data, as well as states that are making decisions about you know, mental health policies. There's a, a whole range of stakeholders that we aim to deliver the data to, and we have a lot of different mechanisms uh, to support that, that goal, but it's really around collecting this large-scale data and then making it as useful as possible. And it is large scale. There's a lot of young people that participate. Yes, we've done the Healthy Minds study at, it'll be close to 800 colleges and universities after this academic year uh, fully wraps up um, and close to 800,000 student participants over time. So it's it's going to be exciting at some point in the next couple of years, we're going to reach that million million participant mark, um, which will be really exciting, but it's a yeah, very large scale uh, initiative every year. Thank you for sharing. Just, I think that background gives good context. Um, studies show that while there has been an increase in college students receiving mental health assistance, adversely, there has been an increase in college students struggling with their own mental health. From your professional understanding, how would you justify this trend in students' mental health? Yes, yeah, so that is that is accurate. We've seen in our Healthy Minds data both an increase in help-seeking behavior, students accessing mental health services, 
Um, and we've also seen an increase in prevalence, but the increase in prevalence has far outpaced the increase in treatment. Um, so the, the unmet need has just continued to grow, um, even though we have seen significant increases in students' utilization of services, um, which is really a good thing in a lot of ways. There are, are fewer barriers. We've seen stigma um, really going down over the last 10 years in our data. We've seen that students are pretty knowledgeable about the resources that are available to them. Um, and it's, it's simply a kind of a supply demand imbalance when we think about the rising prevalence levels and the, the clinical services that are there to support this growing number of students. Um, and that's why our team is really focused on thinking about population level approaches. So we really try to think about what are the ways that we can kind of be as efficient and effective as possible in delivering services to students. And that's not always, you know, just one-on-one -on -one counseling or therapy. That's one of the more kind of resource intensive um, options um, and absolutely is the, the right option for some students, but not for all. And so mm -hmm. trying, to, trying to think about how we can continue to increase help seeking to meet this rising demand. And if it's helpful, I can put some numbers behind it. We've seen about a 26% increase in help-seeking behavior over the last 10 years. Um, 26%. 26%. But we've seen um, about 135% increase in symptoms of depression, about 110% increase in symptoms of anxiety. Wow. Those are really high numbers. 135% increase in depression and 110% in anxiety. And that's based on symptom levels. So not diagnosis, but actual like screenings and um, the results from population level screens. If you the call, so in adult populations, they say that the average person waits to seek a uh, medical care for a diagnosable um, anxiety or depression. Like I've heard six to 10 years. Um, is that ap applicable to college students or is there a number? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the most motivating factors behind our work and behind underscoring the importance of higher education as a setting is when we think about what you just said with the, the treatment delay and then also the age of onset. So about 75% of lifetime mental health problems will onset by around age 25. Um, and most disorders that emerge after that age tend to be comorbid, so existing alongside another mental health uh, problem that someone's experiencing. So if we isolate, you know, that that high school into college age, for many folks, that is, you know, the, the, a time when these problems first onset. So it's that much more important to try to connect folks to resources that can be helpful for them during that time. Um, to try to reduce that delay. It also becomes more difficult in a lot of scenarios to treat mental health problems the longer they go on um, untreated. Certainly, you know, thinking about um, eating disorders as an example, the longer that those, those problems go on, the more we would say refractory to treatment or difficult to treat these problems become. And, and they're more likely, of course, to you know, become comorbid or for maladaptive coping mechanisms like substance use to come into the um, to come into the picture. So it's, yes, that trying to reduce that treatment delay during this very epidemiologically vulnerable time for the onset of mental health problems. That's, that's really kind of the motivating factor behind why um, this age group is so important. So important. 
How do you think the accessibility for mental health resources has evolved over the last 10 years? Yeah, that's a good question. It's one I, I would be interested in hearing a lot of different perspectives on, like including students um, who are kind of on the ground. But um, yeah, so how the delivery of, of mental health services or access to mental health services has changed over the last 10 years. Um, so I, I mentioned, you know, stigma has continued to, to go down. So there's you know, most students actually report that they have pretty positive attitudes about mental health treatment, that they think it's effective. They're aware of the resources that are available to them. Um, so some of these more kind of traditional barriers that we think about um, in terms of access to care um, actually are not as much of a factor with college students. Um, there are still financial barriers for sure. Um, and I'm, I'm mainly talking about being able to access any mental health services. There are issues with kind of continuity of care and like long-term care that some schools just aren't set up to deliver. Um, but overall, there are fewer barriers um, in higher education um, for students accessing mental health services. Certainly, there has been some expansion of sort of the menu of of resources for mental health for students that, you know, it used to be, you know, you're experiencing something related to your mental health. There's one place to go if you're lucky to be on a campus that has a counseling center, that's where you go done and done. That's, you know, that was quite a while ago. We've certainly moved um, past that. And the, the, as I said, the menu of, of options has expanded and there's a lot of, you know, wellness initiatives, there's screening initiatives, there's gatekeeper training programs that are, that are educational for populations. So there's a lot of mental health programming and resources beyond just, you know, the one-on-one -on -one counseling and therapy. There's also, of course, been, you know, to, to varying levels, you know, an embracing of technology, either as a sole, you know, means of connecting students to mental health resources, which can be particularly important. I'm, I'm thinking of an example where I know of a school that is really invested in having um, a digital mental health resource with uh, different languages spoken. Huh. So for students who, for whom, you know, going to seek mental health treatment, particularly if it's, you know, one of your first times, just given the onset, the age of onset, and you're, you know, in a new location, if you're in a new country, even um, that's some going big barriers. To college to yeah, to then expect that someone could you know articulately walk into a counseling center and you know in in their non-native language describe you know complex emotions is maybe just too much to ask of of students, and maybe we need to be putting resources in front of them that actually more so meet their needs. So I'm, I'm thinking of an example of a school that invested in a digital mental health initiative where students can you know speak their native languages when they're when they're accessing mental health services and how important that is other examples of kind of the expansion of digital uh, mental health resources are of course telemental health therapy um, using digital resources sort of as an augmentation so maybe you would have a student who otherwise would have, you know, accessed one-on-one -on -one counseling or therapy every week, but maybe with, you know, a self-guided um, CBT app or some other evidence-based digital intervention, maybe those meetings could get spread out over time and they, you know, need not 100% of those in-person meetings. Maybe it can be reduced to 60% and, and the digital can be kind of supplemented um, in between. So, there's there's a lot going on there, and there's and there's even more going on in terms of kind of prevention efforts and population level initiatives. Ooh, I like the word prevention. What do you want to share with me there? That's what Robbie's Hope is all about. 
Um, well, yeah, there's, I mean, there's so much um, kind of thinking along this continuum. Um, oftentimes in public health, we'll think about sort of an ecological model, which looks like concentric circles and there's an individual in the center and the smallest circle. And at the outer, outer circle, the biggest circle is sort of society, it's policies, it's systems, it's structures. Between that are, you know, the organization, the community, peers, all of that. But at the highest level are some of the most important opportunities for prevention. So thinking about systems and structures, I can give a few examples of kind of prevention at a system level. So some of the prevention efforts at a system level for mental health are things related to basic needs and security. So really trying to encourage schools to think about things like food pantries and um, their housing offerings as part of a comprehensive mental health program. Like we need to be thinking about these initiatives and investments in in terms of how they affect student well-being and students academically. You know, both I think addressing those basic needs um, affects both. And we can talk about the groups of students who are struggling with untreated mental health problems. So like they're not accessing services and what that means for, for academics as well. Um, so that's one example of, of system level um, is basic needs. Um, another example at a system level is policies of, at, in campuses that could reduce discrimination. So we think about the growing number of trans and non-binary students, um, things like name change policies, having an easily accessible name change policy, um, one that really allows it, you know, a student to say, this is my preferred name, these are my pronouns, and that goes to every faculty member, that goes into the health system, so students aren't going to be misgendered or dead named in classroom environments or in the health system as well. So that's another example at a system level is of, a, of a kind of population level um, initiative. There are other um, prevention efforts that have been going on for a long time, but there's a lot of opportunity to improve the implementation of them. So we can take the example of gatekeeper training programs, which are typically these really you know brief programs to um, train lay people, so non-mental health professionals to recognize the signs and symptoms of mental health problems and to be able to make a referral. The way that it Yes, exactly. QPR is a great example, mental health first aid. There's, um, you know, a number of commercial programs and then a lot of schools have kind of started their own uh, gatekeeper training programs. The way that they are typically implemented is to a targeted selected group of people on campus. And oftentimes there's a lot of rational thinking behind who are we training? Okay, let's train our residence hall advisors. Let's train you know, our athletic trainers, let's train, you know, a select number of, of folks in, you know, academic advising positions. But when we're talking about prevalence levels as high as, you know, 50% of students meeting criteria for one or more mental health conditions, we really can't not enough people. take this targeted yeah. approach. So the implementation right. change that I encourage schools to take is to really move towards saturation approach, meaning that every single student, faculty, and staff member is trained in these gatekeeper training skills. It's also not enough to just do this training as a one-off and expect that people, you know, months later when they're, you know, in a, in a situation um, to utilize these skills that they, um, that they're fresh on their mind. So we need to have you know, to use language of, of the pandemic, things that we're kind of familiar with as, as public health best practices, we need boosters. We need to refresh people's 
knowledge and understanding and and really we need also for there to be opportunities for folks to practice their skills in in as being interventionists so um yeah that's kind of there i could i could say a lot about the various prevention efforts but those are some of them that's exactly where my mind went to when you started to talk about qpr and youth mental health first aid is that it's not just a checkbox and i like that um the booster because when you actually have experience using it. I'm a certified QPR trainer and I'm a youth mental health first aid trainer. And I would say that I have probably done more training combining the two and combining our Robbie's Hope adult handbook and making it just applicable to the audience that I'm speaking to. Um, But it's just, it's not a checkbox. It's not a one and done. This is a continuing conversation. Yes, absolutely. Is there some schools that are making bigger strides than others in services that they're offering or like a, you know, best practices. Like I'm sure there's a lot of inequities in schools um, reaching their students and being successful. Yes. Um, we can get back to the best practices um, questions that that's okay. a question in the field. Um, sure. And there's no like one size fits all approach, of course. Um, yes. I mean, absolutely. Like there's, you know, schools that have invested enormously in supporting student mental health. And I don't just mean, you know, financial investments. There are are schools with minimal resources that have done really innovative, um, important work, including some of these things I'm talking about at a prevention level, like inclusivity around policies. Um, uh, The organization Active Minds, which is a national uh, mental health advocacy organization, they award every year the Healthy Campus Award to five campuses um, who have really prioritized student health and well-being. Um, and they share kind of the, the best practices from those five schools, like what have these schools done? What are the initiatives that they've prioritized? How have they implemented these? Um, and they have a webinar where we get to hear from all of the schools. So, And they've been doing that for gosh, probably going on like eight years or so of the Healthy Campus Award. So there's, you know, something like 40 schools that have received this award and it's a range from, you know, public um, four-year schools, community colleges, liberal arts colleges. It's, it really runs uh, the, the diversity of institutions in higher education. So yes, there are schools that have been like formally acknowledged as, as doing really well, with this, there are also schools that have um, that are really at the forefront of these conversations around mental health because they need to be even more so than some other institutions. So schools that serve a population that ha- just has a higher prevalence or higher like risk factors. Um, so I feel that's a little bit of like you know tiptoeing around the answer. I'm not naming like specific schools necessarily. One because I don't feel like I have the full like national purview of what every single school is doing. So I would refer folks to the Healthy Campus Award from Active Minds if you want to see the schools that have kind of been awarded um, that that award and kind of what they've done. It's probably a good idea for a prospective student to, you know, look at this part of a campus that they're looking at, like what is offered and what it, try to get a pulse from other students that are attending, like what, What's the conversation like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that is that's that's absolutely true. I think that students are doing that more and more. Um, 
There's also ways that prospective students can look and see what are the you know, broader campus policies at my institution. There's an organization called the Campus Pride Index that tracks LGBTQ policies in higher ed. And so schools, so stu prospective students can search by school and see like how, how are the, what do the policies look like at the school? Is this a place that at a system level is protecting LGBTQ students? Yeah. So that kind of leads really nicely into particular groups of college students that appear to be more vulnerable to mental health challenges. I think you've named a few of them. Um, you know, can you fill us in from your experience and your expertise on which po populations are more at risk? Yeah, so I think it's really important to kind of preface talking about the groups that are at higher risk by saying like, this is not, this is not like a biological predisposition among um, in this group. This is, this is related to risk factors at many different levels that leave certain folks more vulnerable to mental health struggles. Um, so in Healthy Minds, we sort of look at two buckets of outcomes. One is related to prevalence and then the other is related to help seeking. With regard to prevalence, we see the largest inequalities are among um, LGBTQ students as well as low-income students. Um, those, those groups have significantly higher prevalence of, in terms of symptoms of depression, anxiety, suicidality. In particular, trans and non-binary students have much higher rates of reported suicidal ideation um, and suicide attempts. In the second like bucket, what was that? Is it twice? Is it two times generally? It's even, it's even more than that. It's it's more like, you know, it depends exactly the measure that we're looking at, but it's more like four times the, the rate. Wow. Um, wow. Trans and non-binary students represent about 3% of the overall student sample from Healthy Minds, and they account for about 15% of students who report attempting suicide in the past year. Um, so the, and, and LGBTQ students as well have, have higher prevalence rates. Um, I've been doing a lot of work around suicidality among trans and non-binary students. So those numbers are, are fresh in my mind, but, um, in our data overall, LGBTQ students have higher prevalence and low income students also have higher prevalence rates. Then when we look at the second bucket of outcomes related to utilization of services and help seeking behavior, um, it's students of color and first-generation college students who are much less likely to access services, controlling for symptom levels. So, you know, accounting for the severity of symptoms, students of color and first-generation college students much less likely to seek help. Huh. So interesting. This, those system changes, like how can you be healthy in your mind when you're worrying about paying for everything, affording everything, worried about your family at home, that you're taking this time to further your education, but you could be working and probably giving money to home. There's just, it's so, so many complex layers. Absolutely. Student debt has, you know, continued to increase and is a, a, a very, very powerful predictor of, of mental health in, in this population as well. What about just like academic pressure or um, social media pressure? Um, how do you, how do we look at those factors? Yeah, so I, I said earlier that um, the you know the connection between mental health and academics um, it's it's bi-directional. So 
we know that mental health affects academic performance and we know that students' experiences in the classroom also and in their learning also affect their mental health. Um, what we have seen in longitudinal research with Healthy Minds data following the same students over time um, is that depression is associated, untreated depression is associated with a twofold increase in the likelihood of stopping out or dropping out of college without graduating. And the same students who are the least likely to access mental health services when they're struggling, again, first generation and students of color are the same students on average who have the lowest rates of persistence and retention in higher education. And like I just said, there is this very powerful relationship between untreated mental health problems um, and low persistence and retention. So there's an enormous opportunity to invest in supporting the well-being of students of color and first-generation students. I'd say the you know there's several uh, folks on our team, and including um, one of my co-principal uh, investigators, Daniel Eisenberg, is an economist, and so he frames these questions around you know what 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 why is it important to make these investments and what is the return that schools can expect and there's an enormous return on investment both for relieving you know student suffering for reducing inequalities and then for helping out schools bottom lines i mean for tuition driven institutions they're very motivated to retain their students and, and help them persist to graduation huh. roi in the field of mental health and higher ed Yes, yeah, exactly. It's one of our um, most widely used tools is the return on investment calculator that we created and it allows schools to put in, you know, your student body size. Um, mostly there, you know, a lot of the schools have participated in Healthy Minds so they can, you know, plug in their, their data gets plugged in there. But if they don't have Healthy Minds data, they can plug in another source of data. And then it will tell you, you know, if you were to invest uh, X number of dollars, here's what you would expect in terms of tuition retained. And it's, it's always a strong return on investment. And it's particularly important um, thinking about these investments from an equity perspective. It, if it drives the change, that's fantastic. Like yeah, yeah. <laughs> looking at it from a business model. Um, do you want to talk about Dr. Lipson, talk about um, Boston University? We, our family has a special connection to BU. Our daughter graduated in 2021 from Boston University, but. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, so yeah, I certainly can talk about BU. Um, from the Healthy Minds perspective, I somewhat kind of keep that national hat on and, and know, you know, kind of what's going on with uh, colleges and universities across the country and, and know a little bit more, of course, um, because I'm at BU, but um, it's, you know, the, the laboratory for our research is really national as opposed to just being um, at sure, BU. Sure, sure. Um, I can say that something that was really important to me as I was thinking about, you know, my next steps in my career and where I wanted to end up um, BU had already been participating in Healthy Minds and prioritizing the, the collection of, of data from students for many years before I, you know, even had an opportunity to come and talk at BU. So this is already an institution that, that cared about collecting student mental health data that was using it to inform programs and policies um, already. Um, we, you know, I think like, like many schools, there has been, you know, continued investment in staffing, not only clinical staffing, but also um, sort of elevating leaders in mental health on campus to higher roles beyond just being in the health system. Um, so I think we've 
um, expanded the kind of workforce within BU and also elevated certain folks to have more um, kind of prominent positions given the importance of mental health um, on our campus. Um, most of the other things I would say about BU are just, you know, how happy I am at the institution as a whole, um, but I don't think it really necessarily directly pertains to the broader conversation about mental health. I can say that uh, just, just one initiative that I started at BU um, that I think folks are often interested in, and it's one that, that folks could, I know, you know, for, for high school students or, or college students or parents, um, but also, you know, if any faculty are listening or administrators, um, it's an initiative that I borrowed and kind of adapted from Harvard. It's called Reflections on Rejections. And it's a compilation of uh, reflections, written reflections about folks' experiences with rejections, failures, and setbacks in academia. I think it's very easy for students to look at particularly faculty members and think, this person has just had all success. There's been nothing but success for this person standing up at the front of the room. They are so accomplished. I mean, I remember feeling that way. Um, And so what, what I'm trying to do with reflections on rejections is sort of normalize the fact that the people that you might think are sort of flawless, perfect uh, academic scholars have had far more failures, setbacks, and rejections than we have acceptances and awards and accomplishments. Um, and that's never talked about. There's just such asymmetric information, you know, online and, um, and just what we see. So I really am trying to kind of normalize that um, uh, at BU and that's gained a lot of traction. And there's been a lot of support like from leaders within my school um, that I think speaks to how how valued mental health and well-being is that you know the leaders of our school would take time to to be vulnerable to share their own experiences um, with rejection. Um, what was the other part? You might have this. What was the other? No, part? that's great. That's great. You had just asked I, about one more thing. I got excited about rejections because I feel like that has just tons of power from. Um, kids and listening to them and like when you take the opportunity to be vulnerable and be real like suddenly their interest in you grows and they're probably more respectful of you because you're human and you you're not perfect and you're willing to um just peel back that that layer absolutely and i think i hope it makes students feel more comfortable you know when they are experiencing some sort of setback to come and and that's part of the motivation for me is you know I think I really especially in graduate school was very much kind of this perfectionist mindset and had a lot of successes and then when I had a you know a failure or a setback I kind of kept it to myself I didn't really feel like I could tell my advisor I didn't want to disappoint anyone and and realizing no like your advisor already got a rejection one time today and probably one tomorrow and one the next week because the more things you're involved in the more there's going to be those, you know, rejections. It's, it's such a normal part of, of academic life, which doesn't make it any easier, but it certainly is harder if you keep it to yourself and you can't talk about it. So I hope that it's sort of opening up those conversations and, and normalizing this. Very helpful information. I want to make a little bit of a shift and just get your insight on what you think college students um, can bring to the table in this discussion and potential 
you know, taking steps forward on campus for themselves and for their fellow students for mental health challenges. Yes, there there's so much that that students themselves um, can do, and so much power that that students have. Um, so I mentioned the organization Active Minds. That's a great place for for students to look. Whether you're at an institution that formally has an an Active Minds chapter. Um, or not. There are toolkits. There's, you know, so much around advocating for mental health on campus. There's, there's just so many resources that Active Minds has put out that are open to students. So that's sort of the first stop that I would encourage. Um, then going back to the sort of ecological model of, you know, thinking about these different levels of influence, students have a lot of uh, a, a very important voice in terms of policy change. So something that I, I say when I talk to student audiences is, you know, and, and again, I said, you know, I've been doing a lot of research recently around trans and non-binary students, and that's a minority population on this campus, on, on any campus. And so for change to happen, it cannot come from just the three to 4% of students on campus who identify as trans or non-binary saying, we need these policies to be inclusive of us. If these policies are changing, it will reduce the discrimination that we face. Same with you know, policies that are negatively affecting students of color. Like to, to just have the responsibility fall to people within that identity group is a huge missed opportunity. Um, so my biggest advice is to kind of think about opportunities for allyship um, and to think about, um, you know, so I would encourage every student to go and look and see what are the policies on your campus right now? Do you agree with them? Do you think that they're maybe, you know, creating some inequalities on your campus? You have the potential to change that. And they don't say that to say, it, you know, it's, it's, it's easy and it's, you know, it's much easier said than done, but there's a lot of resources for advocating for policy change for students as well. Um, students are the most likely when they're, particularly when they're in a crisis, to go to another peer. I'm sure you, you know this and you, you've talked about this. Um, so again, it's really important for every single student to have some basic training in mental health. Um, and if that's not already happening at your school, I would encourage students to advocate for that, to, to demand that, to say, you know, it, depending on what source of data you have at your school around the mental health prevalence, or maybe you just want to, you know, nationally cite Healthy Minds data, you know, between 40 and 50% of students in our data are screening positive for depression, anxiety, and or suicidal ideation. And we need to have peers who are the ones that, that folks are turning to, you know, you're turning to your peers when you're in, in distress and to demand that, that you receive that type of training, that all students receive that type of training and that you receive it on an ongoing basis. Um, course, there's a, a huge place for, for just kindness and, and valuing community. Um, one, one kind of protective factor, I think I've mentioned a number of risk factors, but one really key protective factor is sense of belonging. And, you know, I, I mentioned I do survey research, so I'm thinking about specific like survey measures related to sense of belonging. But just in general, if students feel like they belong on their campus, that is a positive predictor of their mental health, of persistence and retention. It's actually getting back to the you know, return on investment. It's a positive predictor of future giving by alumni. Um, and so sometimes I'll talk to schools and they'll say, you know, what levers do we have to do are in our purview that we can pull that will directly affect student mental health? 
And I think I want to answer that question of what can directly affect student mental health, but there's also a really big pathway through sense of belonging. There's a lot of initiatives to try to foster that sense of belonging using peers, using students to build that community that can then kind of indirectly um, affect um, student mental health. Um, you know, and then, you know, we've been talking about these concentric circles, like at the center is, is, you know, students embedded within smaller, you know, communities of individuals who are, you know, close friends. Um, and so that's where I think, you know, self-care, you know, the more kind of intuitive, like mindfulness-based approaches are, are just that those are things that are in your control. And I, again, that's an, a thing that is much easier said than done. Um, but I think if schools are, are prioritizing that mindfulness-based education, particularly, I mean, I wish I'd had that at the age of 18, starting college in a new environment to, you know, know how to sit with uncomfortable feelings and to know how to, you know, have breathing exercises to recognize, you know, when my stress levels were changing, all, all of these things that are, that are part of mindfulness, knowing how to slow your brain down and be present. Um, it's on, it's on individual students, you know, if, the, if the, that's being offered to them, it's, it's on them to actually utilize that, those resources. So my, my kind of pitch for that is just that, you know, mental health is going to be important for any goal or priority that a student has during college, whether they're a student athlete and they're, you know, focused on, you know, balancing athletics and academics, um, prioritizing your mental health is going to benefit both of those things. If you're a student who has, you know, really big, ambitious academic goals um, for yourself, prioritizing your mental health, even though it might feel like you're taking time away from this priority of, of your academics, it is very likely, especially if you're, you know, doing some things that are really good for you as an individual, that is likely to benefit you um, academically as well. Student return on investment. Yes, yes, absolutely find your people. I talk to high school kids all the time that are nervous about going to college. And it's just like, oh, if you can find your people, find your community in that bigger community, uh, the success you're potentially going to have and the happiness that you're going to have is just probably going to be much higher. It's harder to do things alone. Uh, the mindfulness education, that's so interesting. I feel like in high school, it's still, um, we're kind of going backwards as a country, uh, providing those opportunities to kids, health ed and mindfulness. There's a lot of um, emphasis on high, middle schoolers and elementary schools, but our, most of our high school kids have not had those offerings. I do feel like kids are learning it on their own because they see that it's important, but more opportunity yeah. there, I think. Yeah. And I mean, you said your, 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 um, you think you said, you said your daughter, right? Had graduated. You said your daughter had graduated from BU in 2021. I mean, that's years of her college experience that were, you know, really changed and drastically changed by the pandemic. Um, and so now we're kind of coming back and, and coming out of that. And so I'm hopeful that there's even more opportunities. It, I felt a little bit like I, you know, just had had nothing to say about what do you do around like isolation and loneliness for college students during that time. I mean, there were things that we could, that we could do and we were suggesting them, but it's, it's really, really hard to find your people and to find your community, even under the best circumstances as well, you know, it's, and, and then adding in, 
the pandemic, I think for, for a lot of people made that almost, almost impossible to find your community. So I know that, that it's not always easy to find your people and to find your community. It, it's not just in peers. There's a lot of research to also say that just having a single faculty or staff member on a campus who knows your name, who you know you can have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with, that that's another huge protective factor. We didn't really talk about the implications for, for faculty and staff, but there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that um, faculty and staff can be thinking about that can really support students. And if, if we're working in higher education, you know, we care about students, we want to interact with students. And there's a lot of ways we can do that and be really impactful for student well-being. Yeah, such good advice. I was just recently talking to a college sophomore and she's like, every, at the beginning of every semester, I go in and I go to those office hours and I introduce myself. And she's like, I think that's like the best step that I can take for my mental health. And she goes, and then I always ask them just a little bit about themselves, like something a little bit deeper, like, it's like very wise. Yes. Yeah. Fun, fun. Well, we always end every single podcast with the same question, Dr. Lipson. So this is your chance to answer. Um, and you can answer this in any way that you see right. But what does the world need to hear right now? Oh, what does the world need to hear right now? Um, gosh, that's a good one. Um, typical me, I'll try to make it like more specific to help myself have some like boundaries on this and I'll think about maybe like what um what students might want to hear right now um which is like we're going into summer right so it's you know it's finals right now in May and and we're coming into graduation um so I know that's a really vulnerable time for for a lot of students it's a really exciting time as well um, so yeah, to really, to take a break, to actually like give yourself a chance. If you're in an academic setting where the summer is a, a time when you're not teaching or taking classes to actually treat it as a break, whatever that, that means for you. I think we all, um, we all need, need a break. Um, I think that's, I think that's, that's good to, to take that, to take that break. There's a lot of things that the world, um, really needs to hear right now. Um, but, and a lot of people, I think who feel rightly so very unsafe and, and that their, their identities are, are not, um, you know, allowed or, you know, make them, make them unsafe. And a lot of, of course, basic needs that are being stripped from people. So, um, there's certainly big, big, broader messages there. And I know that also contributes to the kind of exhaustion and burnout that so many people are feeling when they're trying to make change in this world. So I think it's just very important to, particularly for young people who are such extraordinary advocates to take some time off. You will be better advocates throughout your entire lives if you do take some time to rest and recover and prioritize yourself. Thank you. Dr. Lipson, thank you so much for joining me today on a hopeful conversation. To our listeners, be sure to tune into our next episode. And until then, remember, hold on, pain ends. Oh.